As we begin, we're going to hear from God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, that you're with us now by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak by your Holy Spirit. Would you give us ears ready to hear and hearts ready to receive your word to us today? Anything that I say that's not of you, would it just fall away? Only that which you want to say, would it um, come through clearly? We ask in your precious name. Amen. Well, um, I'd like you to think back to the most prayerful time in your life. When did you pray the hardest? When did you pray the longest? When did you pray with the most kind of energy and fervor? When did you pray the most consistently? And I wonder if you can think, as you're thinking back, of the reason why you were praying so much at that time. I don't know if you're anything like me, But I've tended to pray the hardest, the most, when I was facing disappointment or crisis or uncertainty, you know, illness or or death in a loved one. You know, why is that? Why is it that it's at those times that we so often turn to prayer? I think it's because in that moment, we know that we're totally powerless. We can't do anything to change the situation that we're in. And so we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and we cry out for him to help us, to intervene in some way. In short, the situation has humbled us and we maybe see things as they really are for a moment. God is the sovereign over the whole universe and we're just little old me and you. The introduction videos to our Sundays, it wasn't actually on today because it was Mother's Day today, has said prayer is not a last resort. It's the first line of defense. But if we're honest with ourselves, at times for us it is a last resort. I wonder what does this tell us about our times of prayerlessness? It tells us that we're too proud, too self-dependent and too self-confident in ourselves. Isn't that so often our problem? And if we're honest... In those moments when we're not praying, we're not believing that we really need God to help us. We think we can get by just fine. You know, when we know where our next paycheck is coming from, we know where our next meal is coming from, we know what we're going to do tomorrow and this weekend and this summer. Well, we used to say that sort of thing anyway, didn't we? George Muller uh, was born in 1805 in Prussia. Uh, That's modern-day Germany. He was a man renowned for his prayerfulness. He would spend hours in day, a, a day in the morning praying. He founded what's called the Scripture Knowledge Institution. They distributed Bibles, New Testaments in up to 20 languages, also funded many schools, uh, Sunday schools as well as kind of day schools. He also founded a series of orphanages for boys and for girls. You may well know his story well. But what's remarkable is he never asked for money from anyone. All he did was pray. He prayed and God would provide. People would suddenly feel stirred to give money and that's uh, where all their money came from. It's estimated that the Scripture Knowledge Institute alone raised £113 million equivalent in today's money. Incredible when he didn't ever ask for it. Now there are many famous stories of George Muller. I'm going to read this one uh, instead. I read this biography of him uh, last last summer. Um, So I'm just going to read from here. And this is George Muller speaking in his own diaries. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, 
and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. The man to whom God, in the riches of his grace, has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the selfsame hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God, I pray on, and yet look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And then the, the narrator of this book, the author of the book, goes on to say, those prayers you ask. In 1897, those two men, sons of a friend of Mr. Muller's youth, were not con- converted after he had entreated God on their behalf for 52 years daily. But after his death, God brought them into the fold. Such was this man's triumphant faith, whatever the difficulty. What an amazing testimony George Muller is to the faithfulness in prayer. Now, during our Lent prayer series that we're in at the moment, and also the daily prayers that we're working through, and in preparing for this message, I have been convicted of my own, at times, prayerlessness. God's been working on my heart, giving me a new desire and a new determination to pray. And so as we begin, I want you to know, you know, some of what I say might be quite challenging, but for every finger I've got pointing at you, there are three pointing back at me. And I don't know how you're doing in your prayer time at the moment. You may be in a really good place. You may be depending on God regularly in prayer. And if that's the case, I hope this message encourages you to go deeper. But for those of us maybe that in the sort of 40 days of Lent at the moment, we're starting to establish good habits of praying daily. What we don't want to happen is in three weeks' time for that just to revert back to how it was before. And similarly, you know, you may just be struggling with prayer. Maybe you're really finding it hard to pray, and I hope this message stirs you into action and encourages you. So this message is about when to pray. Last week, we looked at how to pray. Liz brilliantly unpacked the Lord's Prayer for us. I really encourage you to watch that if you haven't seen it already. And in that, we learnt that we address our Father. I'm trying to change this. It's not. We can change the slide. Thanks. Uh, We learnt to address our Father, uh, who is in heaven. He loves us. He's adopted us into his family. And we, we gaze upon his glory and his majesty, his holiness and his authority. We pray for his kingdom to come in us and in those around us. We pray, don't we, for God's purposes, not our own. Then we ask and depend on God for all our daily needs and for those we live alongside. And we ask as well, don't we, for our sins to be forgiven and for protection against the evil one. Now, if this is the model that Jesus taught, we need to take it seriously. But it still begs the question, when should we pray? How often should we pray? Monthly, weekly, daily, hourly? We're going to look at what Scripture teaches in a few different places. Um, And just as a bit of a spoiler alert, we're not going to get a nice, neat number. There are some religions that will tell you you need to pray so many times a day. They may even tell you how to pray. They may even tell you at what time to pray. But our religion is not a religion of external rules and regulations. We've been transformed on the inside. So ours is going to be a heart response of prayerfulness. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us. So we're going to look first of all at the Lord's Prayer. Because if we look at the Lord's Prayer, actually there is a clue, maybe, as to what kind of prayer lives we uh, ought to have. Notice verse 11 there in the Lord's Prayer. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Notice this day and daily bread. The implication is that this is a daily prayer. And so when Jesus taught us to pray, he was teaching us to depend on God and to pray to God daily. Secondly, we're going to look at this parable in Luke 18, uh, in verses 1 to 8. So I'll read that for us first. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Do you notice that Jesus is telling us that we are to always be praying and we're to not give up. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, uh, as we look at this parable, we're going to look at two important characters, the judge and then the widow. So let's look at the judge first of all. It says in verse 2, he neither feared God nor respected man. What we have to understand about this judge is that he's not ever going to give a decision either because he respects the law, which ultimately comes from God, or because he actually respects other people. In other words, he wants to give justice to other people. He's deliberately portrayed in this parable as a bad judge who's only going to give judgments that are in his own interests. I mean, he might give a good judgment to a rich person because they're going to bribe him. Or he might give a judgment to a powerful person because, hey, it's good, isn't it? I give a good judgment to that powerful person. Who knows what influence um, he could have in my favor? Then we see that there's a widow. The widow uh, has uh, an adversary. She wants justice against her adversary. She has a just cause. But widows in the time of Jesus were powerless. They had very little social capital. They were poor they had no inheritance, they had no man to represent them. So what we have here is a very weak widow and a very corrupt but powerful judge. But what we notice is the judge rules, doesn't he, in favor of the widow. Now why does he do that? Verses 4 to 5 tell us, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not Uh, beat me down by her continual coming. It was a self-interested decision on behalf of the judge, but the widow's persistence and determination, in the end, she got what she wanted. Now, the clue to the meaning of the parable is then in verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. In other words, he's saying, look, even an unrighteous judge will give a just decision when pestered. How much more your heavenly Father who loves you, who has chosen you, who has redeemed you. 
We're to be persistent in prayer because God's goodness to us, his care for us, he listens to us. Let's look at verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I think that suggests to us two things. Firstly, that Jesus is looking, isn't he, for people of faith. And I think the implication is that they are people that are praying. Because that's the context, isn't it, of this uh, parable. And secondly, we see that our ultimate answer to our prayers is in Jesus' return. That whatever we're praying for, whether it's illness, uh, loneliness, persecution, trial of any kind of sort that we might be going through, or just that our needs will be met day to day, all of those things are temporal. But our ultimate hope is in Christ's return, when we be in a new heavens and a new earth. And that, 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 that can frame and shape our praying. So it has implications, doesn't it? First of all, are we praying? Are we a people of faith? Because if we're prayerless, then we're being faithless. But it also means that as we do pray, yes, for God to answer our prayers for the miraculous, for healings, for God to intervene and change a situation, we also know ultimately that that will not happen in its fullness until Jesus' return. Okay. Lastly, we're going to look at uh, some instructions from the Apostle Paul in some of his letters related to prayer. So I'm just going to read them out for us first of all, and then we're going to go through them. First is rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's in Romans 12, 12. Secondly, in Ephesians 6, 18, we have praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Uh, In Philippians 4, we have the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. I want us to notice a few things in these verses. First of all, look, we're told, aren't we, to pray constantly, to pray at all times, to be praying in everything, to be steadfast, to be praying without ceasing. We'd be praying in all sorts of situations, all sorts of times and places and circumstances. And we're to be constant and steadfast, depending on God in everything. We're to be in a kind of continual attitude of prayerfulness. And when it says pray without ceasing, I don't think that means we're being encouraged to pray continually in a way that means I have to be constantly talking to God. And if at any moment in my life I stop constantly talking to God and maybe talk to another human being, that I'm somehow sinning or, or, or going against that command. We're not to be kind of walking around muttering under our breath prayers all the time. You know, I'm a teacher, when I teach in the classroom, there are times when I'm focused 100% on what I'm doing, and I don't think that's wrong. We're also to honor God in our work. We're to love other people, listen to people. How can we do that if we're meant to be constantly praying consciously in that kind of way? So I don't think continual prayer is that sort of praying, where I have to be praying to God all the time, um, muttering under my breath, or, or even just, you know, in my mind. Instead, I think it's a prayerful attitude where I can say, okay, my prayers are sometimes interrupted 
but they never really stop. If I come back into God's presence sometime later, and I'm, I'm aware that I'm kind of reestablishing a connection that I've lost, I'm kind of starting again, I think that's a sign that maybe we've been leaving too much time between our prayers. But if we're coming back to God in prayer, almost carrying on from where we left off, like you would with a friend in a conversation, then I think that's more the kind of prayerfulness uh, that's being indicated or encouraged here. So, kind of as situations arise, we want our natural reaction to be prayer, our natural reflex to be prayer. I think that's something of what's being conveyed here in these verses. Okay, secondly, the context of each of these verses tells us something very important about the value of prayer or the purpose of prayer. In Romans, the context is tribulation and suffering, and in a slightly wider context, it's actually about serving God and serving others with zeal, uh, with fervor. You know, do you feel lethargic in your faith? Do you feel low in energy in your faith? Then pray. Ephesians 6, very famous verses uh, from verse 11 reads, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We know those verses so well, you know, the helmet and the breastplate and the belt. But at the end of that, it says praying at all times in the spirit. And so we're in a battle. It was said a few weeks ago, you know, we're not just in a battle when we feel like we're in a battle. The Christian life is a battle. So again, as we hold on to the truth and we take hold of God's presence and power in us by his Holy Spirit, um, we need to pray. In Philippians, the context is anxiety. You know, you're feeling anxious or worried about anything, then pray. In Colossians, the instruction is sandwiched between an instruction to love your, your family, your, your wife, your children, and then to honor, uh, sorry, to honor your boss at work as well. And then afterwards, Paul's praying for opportunities to share the gospel and that, that um, he and they would speak wisely uh, when they're uh, asked by anyone. We can give wise answers. So it's kind of Christian living and then evangelism. Again, do we need strength to love others? Then we need to pray. Do we need strength and wisdom and opportunities to share our faith? Then pray. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that's in the middle of a big section on loving those in the church, honoring leaders, being at peace with one another, encouraging, correcting one another, showing patience to one another. Again, we need help with any of that. Pray. You see, prayer is the source of all our strength in the Christian life. It's where we allow the Spirit to rule over our hearts again. We ask God to move powerfully so that we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ, with more joy and obedience and effectiveness. Okay, thirdly, the place that these instructions come in the letters also tells us something about the place of prayer in relation to our salvation. I want you to notice that all of these instructions come at the end of the letters in which they're written. And in general, that's a pattern that we see across uh, the letters in the New Testament that um, our, our living, our response, comes at the end. What comes first is what God has done for us in grace and in love. So our living is always a response to grace, not a requirement of it. I'll say that again. Our living is always a response to grace, not a requirement 
of it. We're saved by faith. Galatians 2.16 says we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, fundamental to our faith is the knowledge that we have all sinned against God and his commandments. In our hearts, we've rebelled against God. We've made ourselves gods of our own little kingdoms. And so God will judge us for that, for our rebellion against him, for the sins that we've committed against him and against others. He has to. You know, if God doesn't uh, judge and condemn sin, then he's not really good and he's not really just. But God so loved us that he sent his only son into the world. And that son lived in perfect obedience to his father. That son showed us who the father is. He reached out, didn't he, to prostitutes and tax collectors, to the outcasts and welcomed them in. He was called a friend of sinners. That wasn't a nice term when it was used. And then he was sentenced to death by a people that rejected him, crucified, publicly shamed and condemned for being a king that dared rival the kingdom of men. He was the true king, but he dared rival the kingdom of men. And we find that on that cross, he cries out, doesn't he? It is finished. What is finished? The wrath of God against my sin and your sin that was poured out on him at that cross. He takes the wrath in our place and he satisfies the wrath. There's no more wrath left. God's anger against us is done because Christ has paid for it. And then he rose again, being vindicated by God and living a life that's now eternal. And he invites us, doesn't he, into that kingdom by faith, having been purified, made holy by his death on the cross, and then being invited into everlasting life through his resurrection. Now my question is, what did you do in that story? Nothing. It's all the work of Christ. Heard it said before, you know, Christianity is a religion of works. Don't worry, I'm not committing heresy as I say that right now. It is a religion of works. How can I say that? Because my merit before God is dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. So we're saved by grace in Christ because he is God's gift to us. And our faith accesses that grace. And so we're praying then to God not to somehow be loved by God or accepted by God. But instead we're praying because we're already loved by him. We've already been uh, transformed by him. We are made a new creature in him. And we are in relationship now with him. And he's eager to be in relationship with us. Now if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, as Andy said at the beginning, we'd love you to type in me into the chat. You can do that any time. And Andy and Jane would be happy to just talk to you more about the Christian faith. Um, not in a pushy way, just what we believe. We'd love to share with you uh, more about that. So I think uh, prayer is a little bit like an image here I've got of a treasure chest. You think of a treasure chest, God gives us this amazing treasure chest of his grace, which we can access, you know, help in time of need, peace or joy, um, contentment, whatever it is we need from God, we can access. But he's given us the key which is prayer. We have to use it. We have to use the key to open the chest to access. You know, prayer is a way of accessing uh, many of the graces that God has given us. So I want to deal uh, with a few objections, uh, maybe, to my suggestion so far, that we're to be a people that are prayerful, praying daily, even praying hourly. 
The first is time, right? You say, well, it's all very well you saying that. I don't have time. I don't have time to pray every day. What you're asking is just, it's too difficult. I can't do it. My life's too busy. And I do sympathize with this. Um, you know, we're thinking about Mother's and Mother's Day. I see, you know, what Ruth does, getting up early, sometimes before 6 a.m. in the morning. And then it's a long day till the girls are in bed and... You know, then there's things to do in the evening. So I understand, you know, we've got young kids at home, life is very busy, and I do understand that. A book that's greatly challenged me about prayer is this book here. Um, it's called The Secret Key to Heaven by Thomas Brooks. Now, he's a Puritan writer, so it's, it's an old book. It was published in 1665. And there are lots of great Puritan books covering a whole range of topics. And he, and he says on this very objection to time on page 90... Uh, in his book, I'll read it to you. Uh, I answer, that says, to the objection that I have no time. It is ten to one, but that the objector every day falls away or trifles away or idles away or sins away one hour in each day. And why then should he object the lack of time? There are none that toil and moil and busy themselves most in their worldly employments, but do spend an hour or more in a day to little or no purpose, either in gazing about or dallying or toying or trifling or in telling of stories or in busying themselves in other men's matters or in idle visits or in smoking the pipe. You can tell us it's written in 1665. Why then should these men redeem, why then should not, sorry, these men redeem an hour's time in a day for private prayer out of that time which they usually spend so vainly and idly? It's challenging words. Um, and I think in many ways still can be applied to our lives today. You know, we may not be telling stories or busying themselves or busying ourselves in other men's matters. Well, maybe we do, though. Maybe we do that on social media, right? Scrolling through feeds on Facebook and Instagram. You know, how many hours do we spend on social media every day? A quick Google search indicates from a number of sources the average time that a person in the UK spends on social media is two hours. It's actually just over two hours a day. And that's gone up by 50% from 2012. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, tells a story about in the 1960s, there were futurists, futurists are people that sort of make predictions about the future. Uh, and they were saying, well, because all this new technology that's being invented, things like washing machines, you know, more and more automation, computers were starting to be developed, that a major problem in the future was going to be too much leisure time. We just have too much time on our hands and nothing to do. I mean, how wrong... <laughs> were they. All the convenience has meant is actually we filled our lives with more stuff. We're more busy and we work longer hours than we used to in the 1960s. Uh, Michael Zigarelli, he's from the uh, Charleston Southern University School of Business. He interviewed over 20,000 Christians um, and he uh, said the following or concluded the following, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, and then the cycle begins again. They're sobering words, aren't they? We need to be ruthless about our time, and we need to prioritize prayer, because otherwise we're going to let other things, even sort of, in a way, silly things, crowd out time with God. Now, the second objection 
is you might say, well, I can't pray. In other words, I find praying really hard. I'm not very good at praying. Right? My mind wanders when I pray. I can't focus on prayer for more than a few minutes before I'm thinking about this or I'm thinking about that. Again, I sympathize. Maybe even you fall asleep when praying. I've certainly done that before. Um, but again, Thomas Brooks has some words of encouragement for us. And I'd just like to quickly run through these. First of all, can you be silent before God? Yeah, Psalm 77 verse 4 says, I'm so troubled I cannot speak. Can you grumble? Sorry, grumble. Can you groan, sorry, or sigh before God? Definitely don't want to grumble. Psalm 38 um, says, I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And there's famous verses from Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have the Holy Spirit, and so we can just come before God honestly, even if we're struggling to articulate our prayers. We don't know what to say. We can just sit in his presence in silence or groan and sigh with the help of the Spirit. And thirdly, I'd say, you know, can you ask God to help you to pray? In Luke chapter 11, this is actually the Lord's Prayer in Luke, he says after giving it Jesus, if you then who are evil know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think God loves to answer that prayer. If we need help in praying, maybe we need to spend our time in prayer asking him to help us. You know, we don't have to pray long prayers to be heard by God. We don't have to pray eloquent prayers to be heard by God. Jesus specifically speaks against that in Matthew 6. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So we, we can just be honest, as Liz was saying last week, we can be honest as Jesus was honest before God in prayer. God, help me to pray. Now, before I finish by giving a few practical uh, in suggestions. Um, I want to give you some more motivations for daily prayer. I kind of feel that motivation is key and understanding the importance of it is key and that the practical things, I'll, I'll cover them briefly at the end, but they're kind of less important. So uh, in his book, Thomas Brooks, he gives us 20 reasons that we should be persuaded to pray in private with God every day. And I want to run through them. I'm going to run through them quickly, I promise. Um, pretty quickly, uh, and it may be too much for you to take in, but maybe just one or two or three of them are going to stick in your mind. Uh, certainly that's happened to me. A few of them particularly uh, have been helpful to me. So let's go for it. The 20 reasons to persuade you to pray. Number one, the Old Testament and New Testament saints did it, right? If you read the Bible, Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, if you look in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, the early church, they all did it. So uh, if they did it, maybe we should. Secondly, Jesus did it. Uh, Luke 5, verse 16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And we see this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus would go up on a mountainside alone to pray. Jesus practiced private prayer alone with God. And in fact, um, the reason they ask him, you know, Lord, teach us to pray, there, obviously there was something about the way he prayed that they knew he knew how to do it. Thirdly, so you won't be a hypocrite. Now, this is a hard one. 
But Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If we're only praying publicly, then it's not really a true reflection of what we are privately. And we need to repent if that's true of us. We need to be a people of private prayer first and public prayer second. Fourthly, we're more free to open ourselves up before God. What a privilege that we can come before God and just be completely open about who we are, all our failings, all our sins, all our weaknesses. We can't do that in public prayer. It wouldn't be appropriate. But we can do that before God. What a, what a, what a handing over of a burden we can do before God. What a privilege. Five, what's done in secret is openly rewarded. We see that on the verses I just read in Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Every time we pray, he rewards us. That's a great promise of Scripture for us as we grow in prayer. Six, God has manifested himself most when his saints are in prayer. Very often we see that when saints are in prayer in Scripture, that's when God does amazing things. For example, Peter and Cornelius, that's the moment the church goes from being Jewish to Gentile, the church becoming worldwide. What happens? Cornelius is praying, and he has a vision, and then Peter goes up on the roof, and he's praying, and he has a vision. And the Spirit uses those two moments to bring the church to the Gentiles, or the, the gospel to the Gentiles, rather. Seven. This is an interesting one. It's a privilege only for this life. When we're in glory, we won't be able to pray anymore because we will see him face to face. What a gift and a grace prayer is uh, right now in this age, in this church age. What a shame if we miss it and we ignore it. Number eight, private prayer has done great things with God. Not only has God done great things for people, Prayer has done great things with God. Look at Moses. We looked at Moses last year in Exodus. In Exodus 32, he intercedes for his people. He cries out before God uh, for his people who have sinned against God, and God relents. God listens and hears our prayers. Nine, secret prayer makes well-fed souls. You know, it's often said that you know, a lot of Big business deals and stuff are done actually in private with a quiet word and an agreement than they are done in public. Things that are done in secret often are more powerful than things that are done in public. And so it is with God that as we pray to him, he works on us, deepens our relationship with him. You know, if, if, we, if we feel shallow in our spirituality, maybe that's because we're not praying. At 10, all Christians have secret sins that require secret remedies. Uh, Psalm 19 says, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You know, we have secret sins. We also have sins we don't even know that we've committed that are even hidden from us. But in private prayer, God can reveal those things to us and help us to battle those sins. 11, Christ is delighted in secret prayer. We think about in a marriage relationship, you know, those secret conversations between husband and wife are the most precious and husbands and wives, you know, they treasure the time they have alone with one another. 
And are we not the bride of Christ? Are we not to spend private time with Christ? Number 12, you're the only people God has chosen to reveal his secrets to. It's John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. God has revealed his secrets to us. What a privilege to be called his friend. But if we won't meet with him in prayer, what does that say about how we value him? Uh, 13, prayer has been a great help for his saints in times of trouble. We see again and again in scripture, don't we, that when, when saints are in trouble, they pray to God and God answers prayer. Uh, 14, God is omnipresent, right? So we can pray anywhere. There's no reason to not pray because God is everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? No reason to not pray at any time or in any moment. 15, we're getting there. He who neglects private prayer will be neglected in his public prayer. You know, Scripture has a pattern of private preparation before a public ministry. We see that, for example, with Moses. He spends 40 days in Midian as a shepherd before he's uh, called to lead his people out of slavery. And so again, we can't presume that we're going to have power in any public prayer if we're not first being prepared in private prayer. 16, the times we live in call for much prayer. And look at the times we live in, the, the crisis that we're in at the moment, and, and, the, and just the way that the world is, is going you know, in many ways, turning away more and more from the Christian faith, in the Western world especially. These times call for private prayer. We have friends, loved ones who don't know Jesus. 17, uh, we're related to God by the closest of relationships. What are we? We are the Father's child. We are Christ's wife, bride. We are his brother. We are his friend. We're dearly loved. And what you know, brother or, or wife or child doesn't talk to their father or their husband or their sister or brother? Again, if we're not praying, we're not living in the reality of who we are. Uh, 18, God sets special mark of favor and honor on those who pray. Uh, God again and again notices people that are praying. You see that when Paul's converted, he goes blind, and then he's praying, and uh, God sees his prayers. 19, secret prayer is a horror to Satan. I wonder if this is why prayer is so difficult. Because actually, Satan knows how powerful it is, that time of communion with our Father. And so he would persuade us from prayer you know, he'd, he'd rather even we did many Christian ministry things that we wouldn't pray. Maybe doing good things, but we must have time for prayer. And 20, this, this, this is the one that actually struck me the most. If we don't pray, no one will. We are God's chosen people. And if we don't pray, then no one will. And doesn't God's glory demand that we honor him and give him the glory that's due his name. And we do that as we pray to him and as we depend on him. We are depriving God, in a sense, of glory and honor when we fail to pray. Okay, so uh, finally, some practical suggestions, just as I finish. I, I, I want to say, I think, if, if, if we're starting to get, if we're wanting to get started praying regularly, I've certainly found this personally, that you know, life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So you want to start small, 
and get consistent with that small thing and build it up from there. I would suggest 10 minutes a day or maybe 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. If you can establish that as a routine, if you can be doing that for three or four or five months, maybe then you can start to say, okay, can I push it a bit more? Rather than deciding I'm going to spend sort of like George Muller, you know, three hours in the morning, everyone, you'll, you'll do it for three days and then you'll just collapse and won't get back to it again. Secondly, don't be a perfectionist. You know, remember, remember grace in all of this. If we miss a day, if we sort of, if we let our prayer life slip a bit, we repent, there's grace and we're straight back into praying. We can use scripture to help us to pray. We can use the Psalms, but all of scripture really. And we can also use written prayers. And this is my last kind of point. Um, you know, there are many good apps. I'm using at the moment the daily prayer app, which gives you an opening prayer and a closing prayer, a confessional prayer, the Lord's Prayer, uh, as a kind of short thing to pray through. Or other people use Lectio 365 is a good app. And there are books you can get, books like Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers. And there are other collections of prayers I'm sure you can buy. They can be helpful to help us get started with our praying. And then from those prayers, we can kind of branch off and get into our conversations and, and prayers with God. I suppose finally I'd say um, for those that have the gift of tongues that can be a helpful way as well to pray in private um, again that's a bit like the spirit uh, sighs and groans too deep for words that can be very helpful okay I'm going to stop there I'm just going to quickly pray for us um, as we finish Father we thank you so much for your gift of prayer what a wonderful gift it is and we're so sorry for the times when we have not um, we've not you know, use that gift. We've not not received it from you. We're sorry for the ways that our prayerlessness has maybe made us weak in our faith or shallow in our faith. Holy Spirit, would you help us to pray? We ask Lord, you'd help all of us to pray more. We ask Lord that your Holy Spirit would stir us and aid us as we reach out to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 